I now have the privilege of preaching God's word. And I'd be grateful if we could turn in our Bibles into Mark chapter 14. If you haven't got a Bible, that's all right. Just steal somebody near you. Um, might come up on the screen if you're lucky. I'll be reading it out anyway. Now, for some of you that do usually come to Sovereign Grace, you're thinking, well, what happened to Mark chapter 13? Because I don't recall that ever being preached. And that's true. And that's going to be next week. Next week, Brendan is going to be preaching the entirety of Mark chapter 13 to you, which that's going to make you even more nervous. But I'm going to do the start of Mark chapter 14 this morning because I think it's really applicable to baby dedications and therefore to all that we have here today. So let's read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. If you're making notes, I've called this message a profound party. Let's read together. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, They were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Let's close our eyes a moment. Well, Lord, we do look now to your grace. Lord, did you open our eyes to behold the wonders of of what we see here? Lord, did you help me in my communication? Would you help all those present in their listening? Lord, have your way amongst us by your grace. Amen. You know, there are times as a preacher when illustrations come from really strange and unexpected places, and this is indeed one of them. This is actually an article that I came across some years ago in Sports Illustrated magazine by a man named Steve Russian, and it's during the Clinton administration. It was written in 1998, and yet the point of it is still really relevant today. So listen a moment. When President Clinton professed quote, profound regret last Friday over last year's accident in which 20 people died when a U.S. military plane severed the cable of an Italian ski lift. He echoed another recent pronouncement in February when he said he was, quote, profoundly saddened by a People People magazine puff piece on his daughter. But if two events, one tragic, one trivial, invoke the same rhetoric of grief, is either statement really meaningful? And then he writes, For we live in an age 
of profound baloney. I love that. It's my favorite line. Certain words have been turned upside down and had all their meaning shaken from their pockets. In sports, there have been enough historic moments, enough epic games, enough greatest players of all time to render those phrases empty. Superlatives, he writes, even when appropriate, are bees that sting once and then die. Now, please don't misunderstand. Mr. Russian was not seeking there to critique President Clinton. That wasn't his point. He could have been picking on really anybody, to be, to be quite frank, of many of the great people who walk around the earth. And yet, but what he is seeking to do is to critique the use of words, the overuse and trivialization of big, important words like the word profound and how it can be used so many different times that it's as if somebody's picked it up and emptied its pockets of its meaning. And yet if we're going to understand this text before us today, Mark chapter 14 from 1 through 11, what I need you to understand from the outset of this morning is this scene of extravagant devotion towards the Lord is profound in the purest meaning of the term. It's the only word that fits because this moment is a truly historic occasion, an occasion in which we have this truly profound act of extravagant devotion as this lady who we discover in the Gospel of John is Mary, comes in, and takes an alabaster jar and breaks the top, and this expensive perfume is poured all over the the Savior in an act of extravagant devotion. Causing Jesus to say in verse 7, For she has done a beautiful thing to me. And then say in verse 9, this incredible promise, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is profound. This is life-changing. See, just yesterday in the life of Jesus, it wasn't too great. Just yesterday, we discovered Jesus, three days before he was about to die, standing in the temple courts and having the scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees taking aim at Jesus, asking him questions to try and ridicule and humiliate him. That was his day. And yet this day could not be different. At the start of the day, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, you discover that the chief priests and the scribes are now seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They hate him for everything he stands for. It wasn't for the crowds of the Passover, some 250,000 people walking around Jerusalem. They would have arrested him there and then and sought to betray him and have him killed. They're trying to do it by stealth. Then that evening, a quite different scene comes into view. It is the scene of a party. A party that houses this profound act of extravagant devotion. A party which is profound. A party that is filled with people that Jesus loves and they love Jesus. A party that Mark this morning gives us front row seats for and in effect invites you and me to this party. We're all invited take our seats around the table as Jesus reclines at table. We're all invited, each and every one of us by name, to recline around the table with Jesus. And this is a profound party. It's a life-changing party. So I have two points this morning. 
Number one, the party attended. I want us to examine the story. I want it to feel as if we are actually there. And then number two, the party applied. My friends, it's important we apply it. Martin Luther once said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And for the purpose of our visitors and to help you, you need to understand that that's the way the Bible works. We read the Bible, all right, now and again, but the Bible always reads you. That's why John Calvin simply said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God, because this isn't a Bible and a verse that was just written 2,000 years ago to a different group of people that has no relevance to us at all. The Bible says that it's alive and active. It it runs after us. It has a mouth. It comes after us. It has hands. It lays hold of us. It has feet. It runs after us. And so I want us to attend the party, but then I want us to apply the party because it has things to say to each and every one of us this morning. So let's start then where Mark begins with the party attended. Now this party was a unique gathering. I mean, oh my, as I've studied it this week, I wish I was there. I do. I wish I was physically there because this is a unique gathering, a unique gathering of people who love the Savior. They're not the scribes, they're not the Pharisees, they're not the Sadducees. None of those are present. This is a unique gathering of people who really love Jesus, have great affection for Jesus, and are grateful for him. So apart from Judas, who has not outed himself yet, As a betrayer of Jesus, everybody else in the room loves Jesus. Everybody else at this party is a big fan of Jesus. And as you look around the room, this room is filled with some some great people. And so we discover in verse 3 that our host for this evening is Simon the leper. I mean, just get your head around that. I invite you over my house and, oh yes, this is my friend, Simon the leper. You know, it's quite unusual to encounter Simon the leper. But it's in his house. And what you need to understand is Simon the leper is without doubt a leper no more. See, if his leprosy was still active, then he would, by Jewish law, be quarantined. He would have a bell wrapped around his leg. He would be unclean. As soon as he came near anybody, he would be ordered to shout, unclean. So the fact that this is in Simon's house proves that he is a leper no more. He could well have been one of the ten who in Luke chapter 17, Jesus attends to, and as they cry out to him, have mercy on us, he heals them all. Maybe even Simon was the one who comes back out of the tent and puts his face on the floor and starts to worship Jesus. I don't quite know when he got healed, but quite clearly he got healed. This Simon the leper is a leper no more. And I would have some questions for Simon, wouldn't you? I mean, Simon, what did it feel like to be a leper? What did it feel like to see people from afar but be completely excluded from people all the time? And then, Simon, what did it feel like when Jesus healed you and you started to come back into the fold again? Wouldn't you love to ask Simon a few questions? I'd love to ask Simon quite a lot of questions. But I would want to limit my time with Simon because John's Gospel tells us that there's another guy there that I'd really want to talk to, and that's a man by the name of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, just a few days earlier, was healed. Not only healed, he was resurrected from the dead. And so I'd want to spend some time with Simon the leper, but I would want to then make my way over to Lazarus because I'd have a few questions for Lazarus. I mean, how often in your life have you been able to encounter somebody who died? Not common, you know what I'm saying? I would want to spend some time with Lazarus to find out, Lazarus, Lazarus, what was it like to die? Lazarus, 
is it a bit disappointing to you now that having been raised from the dead, you're going to have to die again? You know, this is the way my mind works. I'd love to encounter him and ask him some serious questions. Lazarus, what was heaven like? What was it like to actually be there and see the Father? What did you see? Download with me. Tell me what I've got to look forward to. And Lazarus, just out of curiosity, who was it that broke the news to you that you're going back? Now, who did that? Who looked down from afar and saw Mary crying and Martha crying and Jesus crying and then go, sorry, Lazarus, bad news, you've got to go back. You know, who, who broke that news to you? I'd love to chat to Simon the leper and I would love then to chat to Lazarus. And yet they're not, they're not the only guys there. The disciples are all there as well. All 12 of them. By now they've been walking with Jesus for three years. They would no doubt have their own stories to tell. As you ask them, hey, listen, what was it like to be in that boat when you think you're all going to die and then Jesus wakes up and stands up in the boat and says to the storm to be still and then it does be still? I mean, what was that like? What were the crowd actually saying when you were taking those baskets round that everybody knew we barely had any food before? But now we're taking baskets around and we're feeding 5,000 or 4,000. What was it like to give that out? What were people saying to you? Were they high-fiving you? Were they wondering where it came from? What were they doing? I'd love to chat to them too. And every good party of every decade and every time we've ever lived has to be catered. If someone is reclining at table, they're obviously going to be eating. And in the Gospel of John, we work out that it is Martha who is catering this evening, the quintessential servant the one who never has time to sit with Jesus because she's so busy, it would appear that she's busy in Mark chapter 14 as well, catering for this event. And most importantly, Jesus is there. Jesus is reclining at table. He's the one they've all come to see. He's not the host, but he's the one that they're all gathering around to encourage him and love him and show him their affection towards him. They love Jesus. and So this is one festive occasion And having been greeted by Simon the leper at the door, who is a leper no more, we then enter into a room full of those who, apart from Jesus, Judas, are grateful and appreciative of the Savior. Well, one would anticipate that this is going to be then a tension-free evening, would you not? No Pharisees, no scribes, no Herodians present. All people who love Jesus. And yet, suddenly then, a woman Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, comes into the room. And what she does then changes the whole party. Because she comes into the room and sees them all reclining at table, Jesus included, and she makes her way over to him. And she breaks an alabaster jar full of expensive perfume, the equivalent of a year's salary and wages. And she breaks its top. And she pours it all over his head. And then she begins to get down on her knees and she takes her hair and she rubs the ointment into his feet. And I can inform you, without doubt, that all conversation that had been happening in that party has now stopped. Okay, the music has gone off. (laughs) All attention is now on Mary and Jesus. All the side conversations, all the laughter, nobody's doing any more jokes at this point. As the perfume smell now begins to fill the room, all eyes are on Mary and Jesus. All eyes are on her anointing Jesus and pouring out this perfume on his body 
and his life. There was no ignoring this public and passionate display of extravagant devotion to the Savior. Kent Hughes then in his commentary says, For this was an intensely fervent expression of devotion, as fervent as found anywhere in all of Scripture. And so it was. The party's in full swing. Everybody's talking about a whole load of different things. She walks in. All attention is on her and Jesus as she breaks the jar and pours it out all over his head and his feet. This is an intense act of extravagant devotion towards the Savior in this moment. So much is taking place here in this moment. And you would assume that surely... Given the popularity of Jesus in the moment, that everybody would be sitting on and applauding. But negative. They're not applauding at all. The disciples once again play the part of idiots and buffoons. I mean, they they simply do not know what is going on again. They can't believe what is taking place. And so we read in verse 4, this is their response. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The disciples just don't get it. Still, I mean, it's like all the way through. All the way through the Gospels, you're just like, what are you doing? And here they are, two days before Jesus dies. This woman comes in and anoints the Lord and their initial response, led by Judas Iscariot, is, whoa, whoa, what a waste. The most precious thing in the room is this bottle of perfume. What are you doing? What a waste. What? This is awkward. This is strange. I don't even like the smell anyway. What are you doing, woman? They are indignant with her. They scold her and speak harshly to her with their voices. And then a voice like no other begins to be heard. The voice of Jesus. When he says to her in verse 6 and addresses them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. See, the disciples in this moment just don't get it. They don't understand what is really taking place here. But Jesus of Nazareth, he completely gets it. He understands that to this woman in this moment, this is worship to her. This is an expression of her love for him, her adoration of him, her praise of him. Just like the widow just yesterday, in trust of the Lord, comes and takes all that she has, the widow's two mites, brings all that she has to live on, and she comes and she puts it into the temple treasury as an expression of her love and affection and trust in the Lord himself. So too now this woman Mary comes into the room, she breaks the alabaster jar of perfume, she points it on him, and while others look on and think, what a waste, to her it's not a waste at all. Because to her the most precious thing in the room is not her perfume, it's Jesus. And so she breaks it. And anoints him. And Jesus understands this is worship to you. This is affection to you. This is adoration to you. And Jesus also understands that God in his sovereignty is using her in this moment to prepare his body for death. Because in two days' time, he will be dead. In two days' time, he will be in a tomb. 
And as was Jewish custom, you would always prepare the body in death with perfume. His disciples didn't get it, but Jesus completely got it. So he tells her, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. And then he memorializes it in verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And he was right, wasn't he? Because that's what's happening now. Here in this moment, her story has been proclaimed to a group of people here in Australia. Just like it is all over the world when this message comes out. J.C. Ryle says this about the scene. He says, The deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are completely forgotten, as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble woman is known all over the globe. Isn't that wonderful? Kings, emperors, great generals, we forget most of them. But the act of this one woman as she anoints the Lord, well, she's remembered forever all over the world. C.J. Mahaney, in response, says it this way. He says, What then is the transforming effect of the gospel? The transforming effect of the gospel is extravagant devotion to the Savior. This, in effect, is the difference the gospel makes. And in this transformation, Mary was to be an example to the church universal. And so she was. Her illustration, an example of love for the Savior that involved a year's worth of wages and perfume that she wanted to pour out over him. This example of extravagant devotion in response to all that she understands the Savior to be is an example to the church universal. And so this morning then, in contemplating this example, we have a wonderful privilege of admiring her and applauding her, don't we? We have the wonderful privilege of pausing a moment and seeing this extravagant act, having been around and attended this party, and applaud it and admire it and be affected by it. And yet what we also have the privilege of this morning, I believe, having attended the party, is that of applying it. For the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. We read the Bible, but for the last 20 minutes, the Bible's been reading you. It's examining you. It's asking you questions. So what then does it all mean? What is the Lord seeking to say to us? How do we apply this? Having attended the party, what then are we meant to do with this? Well, in truth, it depends on how you've reacted to your attendance at the party. It depends what you've seen and how you've reacted to what you've seen. And so that brings me to point two, the party applied. See, maybe you're here then today and you've reacted in the first of three groups that I want to address for the rest of our time. Maybe you're here today and your reaction to this party and your reaction to this, this extravagant devotion of this woman is one of excitement. See, over the last few weeks at Sovereign Grace, we've seen some incredible things, haven't we? We've seen how Jesus Christ really is the greatest treasure of all. 
how he really is the one with all authority that can cast demons out, that can heal the sick, that can preach in a certain way, that can raise from the dead, who can fulfill all of Old Testament prophecies. For the last three weeks, we've seen time and time again that Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. And then last week, we see the widow who humbly and graciously comes and gives all that she has to the Lord because she so trusts him and loves him and adores him. And then today, we attend this party... And we see this woman, Mary, come in and she breaks the alabaster jar over Jesus' head. And we see this as extravagant devotion to him because she loves him and has such affection to him. And maybe you hear all those things and your response is one of excitement because you see these people and you think, I want to be like that. Lord, help me to be like that. I'm excited by her example. I don't just want to live a Joe average life. I want to live for Jesus and therefore follow him in my life. Well, maybe, my friends, if, if that's you, I want to encourage you then that that excitement is an expression of God at work in your life. Because you're not that special, like me. You don't get excited by yourself when it comes to really laying your life down to serve Jesus. That's an abnormal and weird reaction. It's an evidence of God at work in your life. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, calling you to him, calling to you to extravagant devotion. And so if your reaction is excitement, how do you apply this? Well, you apply this by allowing that excitement then to be worked through in your life as extravagant devotion to him. See, that might not look like then the widow's two mites to you. That might not look like this lady's perfume. It might not even be a one-off moment that you can look back on and say, see, that was extravagant devotion. It might not be that at all. But whatever the next step in your journey towards extravagant devotion is like, I think the way we respond to this is by taking it. And if you want to know what that is, it's probably the thing that the Lord's been putting on your heart last week and this week and the week before. Maybe for some, it's just a growing desire to, man, I need to be in the Word, and I feel the Lord calling me into His Word. Maybe for others, it's, I need to pray. Maybe it's for others, I need to actually trust in the Lord with all that I have and not just keep parts of it for myself. The list goes on. But whatever He's been laying on your heart, that's what it looks like for you to move forward in extravagant devotion. Following Jesus Christ is an adventure, and it is an adventure of extravagant devotion. And so if you're excited by encountering this widow, if you're excited by encountering Mary, if you're excited by all that Jesus is, and you desire him to take the steering wheel of your life, then allow that excitement to become extravagant devotion. Truly live for him, and take the next step in the adventure of your life in that regard. And yet I'm aware that for some of you this morning, your reaction to this party, which is my second group, is probably one of confusion. I get it. I was there once upon a time as well. I mean, I would have encountered this lady and just thought, what is all the fuss about? I mean, once upon a time, I used to sit in a church and I would see people doing what we're doing this morning. So we're singing like this, right? Are you aware of how weird that looks when you don't follow Jesus? You know, we go, to, we go to like wanderers, games, and we think, no, that's sweet. Everybody does it. No one asks a question. But you go to church, and you're like, what are they doing? Well, we're doing the same thing as we're doing at the wanderers games. We're worshiping. But once upon a time in my life, that just looked weird. Like, what's going on with that? And then you see people, and you think, man, you're really passionate about Jesus. What's that? That's kind of weird. 
And then you sit there and you just hear what I've just said about people that are excited and really want to live for Jesus. And you're just thinking, what is wrong with this dude? He needs to be going to the sand hospital for some other issues in his life other than preaching God's word. I get it. I was once confused once upon a time as well. The truth is you stand in good company because you are not only like me and all others of us in the room once upon a time, you are just like the disciples because in this moment they're confused. They spent three years with Jesus, but they don't get it. They're utterly confused. What is this woman's problem? And so they push back on her, in effect scolding her because they just don't get it. To these disciples in this moment, they are so confused because to them the most precious thing in the room at this moment is the perfume. It's worth a year's wages. Are you losing your marbles? I mean, I don't know what the average wage is in Sydney. I would think probably about $70,000, $80,000, something like that. How would you feel if we said, you know what, next year as a church, we're all going to trust the Lord. We're going to give away $70,000 each, all that you have. You saw your smiling faces now are doing what the disciples did in this moment. Okay, they're just like, what is this? What is this woman's problem? To these disciples, the most precious thing in the room was this perfume. But to Mary, as she comes in, the most precious thing in the room is Jesus. And so this wasn't confusing for her at all. This was worship. And my friends, in our lives, the thing that goes, makes us go from confusion to excitement, from confusion to adoration, is understanding who it was sitting at that table at this party. Who Jesus really is. See, this Bible... Ultimately, it's all one book. From Genesis through Revelation, it's ultimately just one story. It starts with God. It starts with how God made us, how he knitted us together in our mother's womb. How in his grace, he created all things and did all things. And he made us to find our identity and our joy and our purpose in him. And if we had done that, it would have gone great for us. But in Genesis chapter 3, which isn't a long way into the book, mankind rejected God and went for creation instead. It looked at all that he had made, looked out the window of their lives and thought, sweet, thanks for everything. Do I want to live for you? No, but I'm going to enjoy all the things that you've made me. So mankind goes running off into the world to do its thing and then it gets screwed up because of our sin and then we have the audacity to point back to God and say, what have you done? What has he done? No, what have we done? We rejected him. He never rejected us. We exchanged the creator for the created. We messed up the world all by ourselves. And because of that, the Bible's clear that we're cut off from God because he's holy and just and can't just say, oh, well, never mind. We're cut off from God in our sin and one day we will stand before him and give an account of our lives to him one-on-one. And if we are found in sin before him, we will be removed from him for all eternity into the context of hell. That's the bad news of the Bible. But here's the good news. 2,000 years ago, at Christmas, he sent his son to die in our place so that we could have life and that in abundance. He sent Jesus Christ on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life. And here he is, two days before he's going to die, being anointed with perfume, knowing that his body will be dying, And all along he said, I'm doing this. I'm doing this for you. 
Jesus himself said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, me, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. My friends, this woman, to some degree, as she comes into the room in this moment and breaks the perfume, she gets it. As I've heard, this is extravagant devotion because this is Jesus. Do you get it this morning? Do you get who he is? If you do, then I want to urge you to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And that's what will make this Christmas the best Christmas you've ever had. Because Jesus Christ himself says that if we put our faith in him, it's then that we are forgiven of our sin. It's then we're reconciled to God the Father. It's then that we can know for sure that heaven is our home and we're adopted into his family. He is the only way. You can try all you like to jump, but you've got to jump to Pluto. Only Jesus can bridge that gap. And when we put our faith in him, it's over his cross that we then walk the gap to the Father. My friends, if you want to in this moment go from confusion to adoration, you must understand the object of attention here is Jesus. So put your faith in him. Repent of your sin and put your faith in him and you will know then what all the fuss is about because you will see that he is really the Lord and Savior of your life. Through him alone is forgiveness and adoption and heaven possible. Maybe though, You're in the final group that I want to address today. Because your reaction isn't one of excitement, but your reaction isn't one of confusion. You know who it is. But your reaction, if you're honest, to this party and to this act of extravagant devotion is one of loss. Is one of a sense of loss. See, see if you can't see yourself then in this final story. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of summer days, and instead she broke her own heart. She watched her children run to the playground equipment, and as another car drove into the parking lot. The new car ground to a quick stop. A young, attractive woman with a beaming smile leapt out of the driving seat and virtually skipped to a secluded picnic table near an adjoining lake. The imagination of the mother began to race. Who could this attractive young woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited and carefully planned rendezvous with an over-busy husband, a lunch date with a best friend, or a tryst with a secret lover? The young mother determined to remain on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car, but no one else came immediately. And the mother soon grew preoccupied with her children and forgot to watch the young woman. When she did finally glance again at the young woman, what the mother saw made her own heart hurt. The woman was reading a Bible. The person she had left from the car to meet with such enthusiasm was the Lord. And the mother recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had the same enthusiasm. Oh, once the excitement of her relationship with the Lord had overwhelmed her, once the joy of her salvation had burned warm and bright, but now the fervor had gone. Faith had become a dreary duty. God had become a detached, frowning bystander. Something had happened over the years of her walk with the Lord. 
She did, know what, she did not know what it was, but she did know what she was no longer one who had skipped to meet him. She had lost something wonderful, and she wept there in the park for her loss. And maybe for some of you here today, as you encounter the widow last week, as you encounter Mary this week and her act of extravagant devotion, your response in reality is that you weep for your loss. You're aware that once upon a time, you, you were like Mary. Once upon a time, you would have skipped to be with the Lord because you were fascinated by him. You loved him. You looked at him with great adoration. And yet now you just don't feel so much. It becomes a bit of a duty. Maybe even coming to church or going to a group or reading your Bible. It's like, oh, I can, but it's, I don't know. I'm not feeling it like I once was. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you that that sense of loss is an expression of God at work in your life as well. In the same way, when people feel excitement, that is God at work in your life, drawing you to him more. When you feel that sense of loss, that is also God at work, otherwise you wouldn't care what you've lost. Even that sense of loss that you feel and regret and desire is God at work in your life saying, hey, come to me. So if that is you, in closing, I want you to be pastored by none other than Mary herself. I want you to take a seat with Mary as she pastors you and helps you see what now you are to do. Because Mary didn't start here. She didn't. She didn't start off in her life on her first interaction with Jesus, running over and breaking her perfume bottle and pouring it on his head. She didn't start there. No, she started in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And so, so be pastored by her in this moment. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. My friends, if you're here today and you have a sense of loss, Mary gets that. So how did she go from that to coming into a party and breaking the alabaster jar and anointing the Lord in this way with a year's full of wages? Well, she sat at his feet. And that's all she did. She sat at the Savior's feet. She listened to his teaching. She just wanted to be with him. And over time, as she did that, she became then the lady who skipped to meet with him in the park because he became the apple of her eye, the object of her affection, the object of her adoration. And so if you are here today with a sense of loss, I urge you, then sit at his feet. Find time in your life each and every day to sit at the Savior's feet. It's the only way. 
Because he's not a group of doctrines, he's a person. And yet when you sit at his feet, here's what you'll find. Over time, you will feel your heart warmed again and you'll become merry again. My friends, this is a profound party and I'm pleased you could attend it with me today. Houses within it a profound act of extravagant devotion. So may we all see our faces in the crowd today and in reaction and in application would we then truly be blessed as we live in light of it. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for Mary. I thank you for her example. I thank you for the way it provokes us and encourages us. I thank you for the way you take that story and bring it alive to us in a way we can hear your voice calling us. Lord, as we now look to apply it, would you help us to understand where we fit in the picture? Excitement? Confusion? Loss? Lord, would we see ourselves in the picture and would we go away and live in light of it? And for each and every one of us then, would we understand Mary? And would we applaud Mary? And would we become Mary, for your glory, Lord. Amen.